0: to the prophecy of Jeremiah, prophecy of Jeremiah, the 14th chapter. The message today will focus especially on verses 7 to 9, but let us give our attention to this entire portion of God's holy word. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth, Judah mourneth. And the gates thereof languisheth. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is chapped, For there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yea, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against thee. O hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land, and as a wherefaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night?" Why shouldest thou be as a man astonied, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Thus saith the Lord unto this people. Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, And I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By by sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters. For I will pour their wickedness upon them. Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them. Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with the sword and if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine, yea, both the prophet and the priest, to go about into the land that they know not. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us, and there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, and there is no good, and for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. In response to the scripture reading, let us sing from Psalter 331, stanzas 1 to 4. now confess our faith with the church of all ages and with the words of the Apostles' Creed. And so we say with the heart, what do you believe, Christian? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate And the life everlasting. Amen. Well congregation, shall we now approach unto our God in prayer? Let us pray. Wonderful God of covenant mercies, great. Lord Jehovah, you who are the same yesterday, today and forever, the God of our fathers from ages past, the God of our children and our children's children, we call upon you, our God in Jesus Christ, in order that we would submit unto your commandment, that we do pray that we do speak unto you, presenting before you the will of your people, those things which we desire and long for, those things which we expect in faith. For you have pledged yourself unto us as our God, and said that for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, you will never leave us nor forsake us. Indeed, our names are written in the palm of his hand. And so we know that we are so much more reluctant to ask than you are to give. We are so much more reluctant to pray than you are to give bountifully of your vast reservoirs of grace and love. For we know that you are much more loving than earthly fathers who will never give a stick or a stone or a serpent when your children come begging for a loaf of bread. You desire good things for your children, not for their own sake, but for the sake of your plentiful mercy, for the sake of your covenant goodness and faithfulness. Your gospel covenant is a great covenant. For it pledges you unto us, and it pledges us unto you. And it provides all the means of this glorious union and reconciliation in the mediator, Jesus Christ. He who is the very substance and sum of the new covenant. We ask that you would indeed give us a spirit of true prayer. For we know that there is a vast difference between saying the words of prayers and truly praying with the heart and with the spirit. We know there is such a vast gulf between sitting in a pew when prayers are said and joining our hearts one to another to as those who plead before the throne of grace. indeed. Every single prayer is a miracle from on high. It is a gift from your sovereign hand. It is a unique imprint upon the soul as the hearts of your people issue forth in supplications and praise and confession and everything that lies upon our hearts. Indeed, sometimes we know not what to pray for, and so... There are only groans that issue forth. But we thank you that there is that glorious Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who bears with us in our infirmities, that he enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, even where we find so much frailty and weakness in ourselves, so much spiritual weakness that renders us unable for this spiritual and solemn task. Help us to pray. Teach us to pray. Help us to pray, not merely in words, but in power. Give us prayers as our fathers and mothers had of old, the, those prayers that bring heaven down, that cause great uh, and glorious feats to be done as you hear prayers and as you gladly give what is requested in faith. We know that your arm is not short to save, that you are no different than in days of old when great feats were done. You are as able to move mountains as ever. And so we are bold to ask for the removal of mountains. We come before you at a a solemn and an important time in our nation's history. Has there ever been so much division? Has there ever been so much at stake? In a temporal sense, it seems as though everything hangs in the balance. But we wonder, is there the same attentiveness to the spiritual condition of our neighbors, of our leaders, of our citizenry? of indeed the churches of this land, of even our own souls and that of this congregation and the families connected with it. We need, O Lord, we need you to rend the heavens and come down. We need revival in this land. We may think... And so often do, that if we just had the power, if we just had the influence, if people would listen to this voice or that voice, that all would be well. And yet there is one voice that we all must hear, and that is the voice from heaven. The voice that speaks true wisdom from above. That wisdom which humbles and slays the pride of man and that wisdom which exalts in the glory and the power and the holiness and the justice and the wisdom and the might and the grace and the mercy and the love of our faithful covenant God, even the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us at this hour in our nation's history. Help our poor nation. To experience the revival that we have heard of in days of old. To experience a work of your sovereign grace. For nothing less, O Lord, will help this nation. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ. It is only from repentance, from wickedness, and a striving after true holiness by the working of the Holy Spirit that amounts to anything in the long run. One life to live will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. Nothing else, Lord, will matter on that day of judgment, only what is done in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that our prayers would affect this, this spiritual change, this great transformation in the days in which we live. We plead, O Lord, for revival beginning here and extending forth throughout our community and city, throughout our province, and throughout our nation. It is in this way that true justice can be established in the land. It is in this way that true harmony and peace and love may dwell in our communities and families and churches. It is in this way alone that you will be glorified. And so this, which is on the heart of your people, we present before you, glorify your great name and enable us, Lord, to persevere in prayer, to persevere daily and hourly and and as long as it takes until we bring heaven down into this fallen and sin-filled and pain-filled world. We, O Lord, are a wicked people. Our iniquities abound, and they testify against us. We have transgressed all of your laws. We have kept none of them. In a thought, word, and deed, we have broken covenant with you. But we plead that you would not break covenant with us. Though our sins are great, may your grace much more abound. May you blot out all of our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ, the mediator, and his shed blood. Will you rectify that which is crooked and amiss in our hearts and lives by the working of your Spirit? Will you enable each and every one, also those who are bowed down with great anxieties and worries and anxious cares, those who fear for the future, whether of their family or their church or themselves or the nation or whatever it may be, give a word in season from above. Enable, Lord, your servant to speak that which is truly from your word and give us each hearts of faith to receive it. We need you, O Lord. Do not depart from us. Abide with us still for the sake of your great mercy. For we pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing from Psalter 353, stanzas one to three. Of the congregation of the Lord, will you open your Bibles to the 14th chapter of Jeremiah. Let's read again verses 7 to 9. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against thee. O oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wherefaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man astonied, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Well, congregation, will you agree with me that it's times of great consequence for one's nation? That the love that we have for our nation is most obvious to us. You see, God did create us with these kinds of natural loves, natural loyalties of a special nature for our country and for our nation. And it's when the things that are really important that are going on, whether something really good or something really bad, that we perhaps in a special way identify with our fellow citizens. And we're we're drawn to connect with the traditions and the history and the, and the great story of our country. It does, I think, come from a very basic place of, of, of loyalty, what we call true patriotism. And sometimes that, that kind of impulse in the human heart can lead to a kind of glorying, sort of a, a natural pride or or a boasting that almost covers up all the the defects of one's country. And of course, we know even throughout um, history of people, even now living, and even today that. It's possible for that impulse to be abused so that we are blind to the faults and injustices and, and, yes, even the sins of our country. But true patriotism, true love, is not something that covers over the truth, is it? Indeed, you know that uh, when you most love someone, say in your family, it's then which i think you're you're most aware of their faults when you truly care for someone you you regard them as they truly are and yet you desire the good of them and it's in that way by honestly looking at uh, the object of your love that you're the most practical good and so also when it comes to one's country the the prophet Jeremiah was someone who deeply loved his people, his his nation, that southern kingdom of Judah. And he had a special calling as a preacher over a number of decades, a very difficult calling, and that was to preach about the judgment of God coming upon the land. And Before that catastrophic judgment in 597 BC, when the nation be brought into captivity in Babylon, there were some other uh, revelations of God's great displeasure with the people. And one of them is recorded here in this chapter, that of a great and terrible drought. And as we read the first six uh, verses, you come to see something of the terrible plight that was going on both the, the nobles and the common people they've gone such a long time without rain from heaven that no matter where they look they cannot find water and even the the beasts and the and the cattle and the donkeys they are, are also dying there's a terrible famine and while that certainly can be a judgment of of the Lord in in any uh, nation's history. It was of a peculiar character with this country, covenanted as it was to God. We learn in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy that the the lack of rain and the drought and the famine uh, that could befall that land was a peculiar sign of the Lord's displeasure and judgment and a sign that the Lord was withdrawing his presence. And I think the times in which we live are, are obviously somewhat dissimilar. We're not going through exactly the same kind of problems in our own nation that uh, that Jeremiah and the kingdom of Judah went through in the midst of of this terrible drought. But I think we can recognize that our nation stands on a bit of a crossroads, that events of very great significance are taking place and And it will impact everyone in one way or another when it comes to the kind of country we live in. But I think that the thing that especially grieved this prophet, and the thing that should especially grieve us, is the withdrawal of God's presence. One thing or another may happen to a country, but... Unless it is accompanied with spiritual life and people turning unto Jesus Christ, it can never satisfy us. And indeed, we ought to see the absence of God's reviving and reforming work in, in a nation as a sign of his great displeasure. Jeremiah, in verses 7-7, to nine, chooses to unite himself to his people, to stand for them and offer the prayer that he is persuaded the whole nation should be praying. He offers words that I think are for our particular instruction because they breathe of the very substance of true prayer, and that is humility. Humility. People can say in a sort of casual way or a flippant way, well, God bless Canada. But often might they ask the question, why ought God to bless Canada? And what would that blessing really involve? Well, such questions are those which Jeremiah, in a special way, grappled with. And I think that there's something of instruction that we can take from these verses as well as we would seek to pray for our own countrymen and certainly ourselves as well. With the Lord's blessing and help we trust, let us look to these verses and consider them under the theme of a humble prayer for a sinful people. A humble prayer for a sinful people. And we'll consider uh, three thoughts. First, a humble confession. Second, humble uh, reasoning. And third, humble pleading. Well, you, uh, as we look through this, uh, this confession of sin that we see in these words, we come to see what really should characterize the prayers offered for a sinful people. And in a way that, that applies to everyone in every circumstance. There is none who is without sin, and yet sometimes it can be that when a spirit of pride enters into our our prayer life, it is because we've lost sight of the sinfulness of the one praying, or perhaps the one's that we are praying for. We come to uh, rush into prayer and and just sort of have a very casual attitude or even an entitled mentality to it. And we ought to call that for what it is. It is pride. And we know, do we not, that as, uh, as the New Testament writer James says in James 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to... The humble. Nowhere should humility, true um, coming low before God, be more evident than when we have to confess our sin. In a way, that can be the the thing that we neglect in our prayers most easily, but it it is very important. How is it that Jeremiah confesses the sins of the nation? Well, look there in verse 7. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. I think even just reading the words, you can see that it breathes forth that that attitude and true hard experience of Humility and brokenness over sin, but what are the some of the specific things we can gather from these words? Well, the first thing I would notice here is that there is a real sense of the reality of sin that sin is real. he says our iniquities testify against us, and so it's as it were, there are the, the people of Judah and they stand in the courtroom. And with any court proceeding, there is a determination of the evidence. Is there guilt or is there innocence? Where is it that the evidence hangs in the balance? But here we have the crimes and sins of the people, as it were, walking into the courtroom. The very sins of Themselves, They walk right in and they take the stand and they testify against the people. Sin for Jeremiah was not an abstract thing, not a, a sort of thing that could be just reasoned away or dismissed. It was real for him. Sin was as real as a person that you'd be, be looking straight at into the eyes of it was the sort of thing that had had a face and a mouth and and a tongue and could speak that was how real sin was for Jeremiah and he he sees the iniquities these, these great sins sins of terrible guilt and they are testifying against the people they're all pointing to the people and saying guilty 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 and for us it's it's often not that way is it when we we have a prideful disposition especially when it comes to our own sins yes we can think of this maybe someone who sins against us in a particular way and And that's something we're not liable to forget. But when it comes to our own sins, the things that we have done wrong, the breaking of God's commandments, well, we can see that as a little thing. We can see that as something that is in the past. And anything that's in the past, well, the memory grows hazy. And and if our memory goes hazy, perhaps God's memory has grown hazy as well. But God, who is outside time, for whom everything that happens is as an open book, who scrupulously and with meticulous detail observes and knows whatsoever happens in our lives. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, everything we leave undone. Everything, the things that we are ashamed of, the things that that if they were spoken out loud in public they would bring us to to such shame we would maybe would never want to be seen in public they are so real to god he sees every single sin and all its its hideousness and is that how we can see sins as well can we see the sins of our nation and can they can they really take on this reality to us? Let's say we we would desire that, that God would bless our nation with true, true blessing, a kind of a spiritual nature and an eternal nature, that souls would come unto Jesus Christ and that this would be a nation that can live up to its motto, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, named after, um, of course, the... Uh, The Psalm 72, according to the the Fathers of Confederation. But we look around and we see it's not so, is it? Everywhere we would look, there is sinning with a high hand against heaven. And should it surprise us when it is also in our own hearts and in our own lives, and we are, are as liable sometimes as any Canadian to minimize that sin. But if we will be brought to this place of humility, congregation, let us, let us regard sin as it truly is in the sight of God, as real, as as real as anything, and as a problem to be contended with before any else, and that is, sin, that we have broken the law of God. That in the first uh, place, the reality of sin, let's also consider the magnitude of sin, we see there, do we not? For our backslidings are many. Our backslidings are many. This word "backsliding" it's almost unique to Jeremiah. It, it, it pops up here and there. I'll swear in the Bible, but it's it's most frequently used in this book. It's a very vivid uh, depiction of what it is to to sin, and it's pictured as uh, as a going back. It's especially pertinent to those who have some light of truth, some exposure to the revelation of God's character and law and even of his gospel. And having received that light, having received the revelation of who God is and what he requires, there is a returning unto the darkness there is a going backward there is as you could translate it an, an apostatizing a turning away from the true god and of course um, there can be great or we would say somewhat smaller examples of that but it's it's always a terrible thing to contemplate backsliding going away from the truth treading back to old sins and old habits and old rebellions let me see that in our own life it it ought to be noted perhaps returning to patterns of behavior that we had long thought sanctified and dealt with and yet turning back unto them grievous thing but it can also be that with a whole nation as well as it was with this people of Judah, though given so much light and revelation of God's truth, yet succumbing to rank idolatry and immorality and injustice and oppression. All levels of society were incriminated in it. As we read uh, later on, even those who were most uh, responsible for revealing the truth of God, even the prophets, many of them had also turned away from the Lord and were preaching falsely unto the people, giving false hope. And if we look at this land of of Canada, we would say that if ever there was a backsliding nation, it is this one. Yes, we would would say that it's never been a perfect nation, never... um, been one that was without great uh, problems and injustices even. But I think we ought to recognize that today what we are seeing is a great apostasy. Every vestige and trace of true Christianity in our nation and in our culture, it is being violently resisted and hated and attacked by this present people. And you see it in the culture, you see it in the laws, but you also see it in the church. Listen to what Jeremiah said there of these uh, prophets. Verse 14, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination. And a thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. How terrifying it is when the truth of the word of God is replaced with the deceit of the heart. And ought we ought not to recognize that throughout this land, in many a pulpit or where? once a pulpit was the the truth of the lord and the the pure doctrines of the scripture those of the law and the gospel they have been replaced by human thoughts human traditions vanity and lies and heresies those which are greatly displeasing to the lord but with all the trappings sometimes of Christian language, with all of the echoes of something of a spiritual character. And yet what does it all amount to this kind of of false pseudo-Christianity that so often predominates? Well, it is to the destruction of those who hear it. Where people would Submit themselves unto teaching which does not truly preach the character of God as it is revealed, nor his hatred against sin, nor the specificity of salvation in the death of his Son and the work of his Holy Spirit. If these things are lost and there is but a human-centered false gospel, then there is no hope for the people under that apart from a very great work of God. And so it is with a nation where the pulpits of our land have departed from the truth. We are a backslide and slidden people. And we ought to face it. We ought to face it also if we see the traces of that in our own heart and life. We ought not to hear such things and just say, well, all is well with us, all is well with our church, all is well with our families and our own personal lives No, the seeds of apostasy they live within every sinful heart and but for the grace of god this church as well would depart unto the spiritual darkness that is so rife within our land and when we see such things it ought to it ought to grieve us as it did jeremiah not only the reality of sin but also the magnitude of it. And in this this connection, there is also what we see in its great offensiveness to God personally. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee. Sinned against God. God in his holiness. God in his justice. God in his purity. God in his wisdom. God in his power. God in his glory. God in his mercy, God in his grace, God who is altogether lovely and kind. It is this God that they have sinned against with a high hand. And so it is with every nation and people that does not only sin against the light of nature, but the truth of the scripture, as indeed our nation has, turning away from the living God. There is no hope for such a people. God does not regard those who apostatize from Christianity as the the mere pagans who've, who've never lived under the light of the gospel. Where there is a departure from the true religion, there is always a very terrible judgment awaiting for such a people. And so also it shall be for our own land as well. Why? Because it is a unique offense against Jehovah God. That is what we need to reckon with when we, he would truly be humbled in our prayers. God as he truly is, the God to whom we pray, he is offended personally with sin, and not only sin in the abstract, but sin in the particular, your sins and my sins. We ought to face this squarely, and we ought to let the full weight of that penetrate into our inmost being. If we would truly stand in the gap, stand as a representative for our nation and plead to the Lord that he would bless us and ours, then this is the way we must face everything that is heinous about sin. And the way to do that is to see it as an offense to God. So we see that in the first place, humble confession. No excuses, no papering it over. There is sin in all its heinousness. But in the second place, let's look at humble reasoning. Humble reasoning. You see, as as often with prayers, there is a particular logic to it. It's not just a bunch of words strung together, but there is, is a forceful argument being put forward. And I'd like you to track uh, with me as we consider it as it is in this prayer. We see that in uh, verse 8. O oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why shouldest thou be a stranger in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldst thou be a man astonished as a mighty man that cannot save? So what is going on here? Well, first look at these names or titles that are ascribed unto God. These which really structure and ground the whole argument to follow. Well, you see, in the first, there is the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel. There is... This name that is ascribed to God is hope itself, according to this reckoning. Oh, hope of Israel. So it's properly understood here as grounding true hope in God himself. True hope is found in none other than God, not in any human institution, not in any human movement, not in any human endeavor or human plan or human strategy. True hope is found in God. He is the hope of Israel because he is the God of covenant to his people, Israel. He is bound himself by this covenant of grace and righteousness and eternal life in Jesus Christ unto his people, the church. And this is what is, is drawn out here. He is the hope of Israel. If you have any expectation of, of good for you or good for those that you care about, it can be nothing else that you tether that hope to but the living God, Jehovah himself, the God of all mercies and the Lord of all comforts. Anything else is but sinking sand, but here is the solid rock that the wise and the just and the the faithful build their lives upon. This is the God of hope. So Jeremiah, he regards the pitiful state of his nation. He regards the terrible um, sins that they have committed. And he says nothing at all in their favor. He doesn't say, well, there's this or that mitigating circumstance. No, he just says, Says, You, O oh God, you are the hope of Israel. And I think as he especially draws upon a name that uh, points to God's covenant faithfulness, it's good to look later on in this chapter where he returns to this thought. Um, there in, in verse 21 Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember. Break not thy covenant with us. He was especially drawing attention to the throne of God's glory, even that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, there in that glorious temple where God's presence dwells, where the sacrifices were offered, where God really met with his people in their, their solemn worship. He met with them because of his covenant. He, their God, they, his people. Such promise is given to their forefathers of old. This is the hope of Israel. And he says, can the hope of Israel break thy covenant with us? Yes, it's not something incredible to think of the sinful people breaking their covenant with you. But can you, O God, ultimately and completely break your covenant with us? sound logic this god cannot deny himself and where he has pledged himself unto his church then surely he will remember that covenant he is not a man to change his mind he is indeed the same yesterday and forever but look as well how he is addressed not only as the hope of israel but the savior thereof in time of trouble god is the savior god not merely in easy times because if the church never got herself into great problems then there would be no need for a savior you think of the the church as she was there in bondage in egypt and the groans cried out unto heaven under the lash of the egyptian whip they pled for a salvation from that bondage and god did not Forsake his people, but for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promise to them, he rose up a mediator, Moses, and, and brought great, terrible judgments upon that land. And you remember that hour of, of testing where they were brought to the, the Red Sea. And there are the armies of Egypt behind them, and it seemed as though now there was no hope for them. Now was the trouble that they could never be delivered from. This was finally it. But what does God do? Well, according to his great mercy, he opens up miraculously that, that great Red Sea, that body of water, and the people walk through on dry land, and, and the water comes down to crush the enemies. It's especially this, that we see the great Savior God in the history of his people, it's it's usually what's referred to when God is referred to as a savior in the Old Testament. But it also looks af- ahead, does it not, also to that greater liberation, that greater salvation, the greater exodus in the Lord Jesus Christ. His name means savior. He is the very sum and substance of God's covenant. He is God with us. He is the greater temple. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of all the promises to his people. And so we with with great propriety can also claim this as well and say, God, not only the hope of Israel, but the Savior in times of trouble. Times of trouble like we are in also today. Troubling times, these last two years we won't rehearse all the things we have experienced even as a as a congregation let alone as a nation but who knows what could befall us in the future who knows what may hang in the balance concerning the the welfare of the people of this land but we also ought to see that that no matter what may happen that the greatest need of the of the people of this land, it is of a true salvation from hell and judgment. Sometimes I think that the greater judgment that God could give to Canada would to make everything go back completely to normal. All the prosperity, all the freedom, all the health, all the things that we've enjoyed in these past decades, go, let it all go back, and yet... Allow the spiritual hardening and apostasy to continue so that the people of this land gracefully and peacefully sleepwalk into hell. Would that be a fair bargain? No, I would rather the very most oppressive of tyrannies and the worst of disasters if it would be accompanied by a true humility among the people and a turning unto God. For this life is but a vapor and will will soon be vanished away, but eternity endures. It's ought to be how we weigh things in the balanced congregation. It's ought to be how we address God according to the sound spiritual logic of Jeremiah as we also plead for our own country. But likewise, we see not only that there is the um, names and titles which are addressed, but also the questions asked, the questions asked. And the first uh, series of questions that Jeremiah asks of God, they especially uh, picture God as though he were a stranger passing through. What is the purpose of this question? Well, let's, let's look at what we find. Why shouldest thou be a stranger in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry? for a night. So what is the the picture here? Well, here is someone who visits Judah. And he's a stranger. He's a traveler. He's just passing through. He's he's perhaps like you and me if we would uh, go to a distant country, we'd check into the hotel. We'd rest our weary bones for a season and then we'd pay our due at the front counter and we would would leave and and never give a second thought to the the place that we had been. That's sort of the the idea here. He's, he's sort of bringing this question before God: Is it that you are acting like a simple wayfarer, or someone who is just passing through? You have no stake in us. You have no um, you have no real lot with us but indeed we are nothing to you that's sort of the force of of the question and it's put as a as a question isn't it even even though there is certainly a, a point to it there is a, a definite uh, argument being made yet it is offered as as a question it comes from a place of hurt and of longing and of woe it is breathing forth still of that spirit of humility and it is effect this. Why, Lord? Why would you abandon us? Is it not the case, as as we read there, that your uh, your throne is among us, that your temple is among us, that your place is with us? And yet, can you just leave us aside as though we are nothing? The next question is is sort of similar to it, and it, it connects with the with the line of reasoning. And this is is much more where he asks um, whether God is acting as a man, basically. Why shouldest thou be as a man astonished or astonished or surprised as a mighty man that cannot save? So here we have uh, a human being, a man, pictured here and... In this circumstance in which he finds himself, he first does not act because he's astonished at at something that happens. I understand that can be the case, right? Maybe we're thrown for a loop because something that we never expected to happen happens, and we're we're just in shock. We can't do anything. And the other uh, the other picture, as as I understand it, here is. A mighty man that cannot save. Here is someone who has at his disposal great strength, great power, but he cannot save not because of his lack of strength, but because of his lack of will. He does not desire to use his might. So two things sort of of picture, but what is the, the implication here? It is that surely, God, you cannot act as a mere man. You are utterly different than man. You are so much greater than man, and and how could it be that if this was the end, if this was the end of your your people of Judah, if that was the end of the story, that we would just die of thirst, that you would not be regarded by by observers as in this way, someone who has no stake with us as a stranger, someone who is unable to help as a man. I think it's it's also returned to Here in verse uh, 22, at the very end of the the chapter. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art thou not he, O Lord? That is Jehovah in the Hebrew. O Jehovah, our God, therefore we will wait upon thee. For thou hast made all these things. It's contrasting here, and I, and I think it's also implied in these questions, how utterly different God is from the false gods. The true God, Jehovah, he is one who can never forsake his people, and he has no lack of power to save. He has no lack of willingness to save. He will surely vindicate his great name. He will be faithful To his covenant. And so all these questions are, as it were, appealing to this character of God. They are all about glorying in who God is. Jeremiah is, as it were, saying, I know you, God. I know that you are so able and so willing to vindicate your name. You are so merciful and compassionate, long suffering, mighty and powerful, that surely this cannot be the end. In a particular way, God had pledged that the, the nation of of Israel and Judah could not be be utterly forsaken or destroyed from the earth. It was the pledge that He gives to His Church from generation to generation. And there is no peculiar promise that uh, that the Church in Canada will not be utterly extinguished, even within our lifetimes. There is nothing exactly comparable that says that the church in this land will not be utterly destroyed and yet i think we can also appeal to this very same god of covenant and say that though though you have not given such a promise to us as you did to judah yet we are engrafted into the covenant of judah in jesus christ We also, O Lord, are the people of your heritage. And we can use this as we wrestle with God for the good of our families and churches and people and nation. We can say, would it not be so fitting, O Lord, that you should vindicate yourself through the manifestation of your power and revive us as in days of old. Well, in the third and final place, but in in close connection with it, let's consider humble pleading. Humble pleading. The first plea that we have in these verses is found explicitly in verse seven. Do thou it for thy name's sake. And the first thing to say is, especially if you would look at uh, the first two verses, but really all three verses here the the weight of it is very much towards the confession of the guilt of the people humbling themselves before god and in appealing to the character of god and and the actual pleading itself is, is almost is almost minuscule in comparison it's just a very very short statement do thou it for thy name's sake and even there it it is, once again, nothing to do with us, nothing of what we deserve. Do it for your name's sake, for the glory of your name, for your reputation among men, and indeed for, for the manner in which you would glorify yourself through the keeping of covenant, through the salvation of men in Jesus Christ. This is, is ultimately what should be pled for. Do it for thy names sake god-centered prayers that's what we need focused upon the glory and the honor of god that is is what god is pleased to hear if our prayers would truly be humble they would speak little of us of a positive nature that they would would glory much in god if our prayers would truly be tuned by the Holy Scriptures, they would be focused upon what brings glory to God and very secondarily what brings comfort to ourselves. Yes, we can pray for ourselves. We can pray for the good of others that are dear to us. But surely this is on the heart of every child of God that God's name would be magnified. But this plead as well. This pleading that we see in verse 9. Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Leave us not. A very simple plea, isn't it? Do not leave us, God. And it holds forth, doesn't it, the full weight of everything, doesn't it? We deserve to be left behind. We deserve to be forsaken. And why is it that God shouldn't forsake us? Why is it that God shouldn't forsake Canada? Why is it that God shouldn't forsake even our own church or ourselves personally? Well, he says it very, very simply. He says, we are called by thy name. That very name which speaks of God's glory and power, that is the name we are called unto. God revealed his great name of Jehovah to the people of old. He revealed himself as the I am that I am unto Moses, unto the patriarchs, unto the prophets. And did not we, under the New Testament church, did not we see the fullness of this expression of the name of God in Jesus Christ? That he is the one who fully reflects the attributes and character of God. His love and his tenderness as well as his wrath and judgment. Everything came into fullness and, and focus under the New Testament. The coming of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. And I think of this name that we are called unto also today called through the word every Lord's day unto God in Jesus Christ, the very God of our fathers from every age. I think of that name which we are baptized into, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, sealed unto each one of us, this very same God. And I think, is this not a strong plea? A strong plea for a weak people is to say, God, you have called us unto yourself. Shall you call and shall we not answer with these pleadings? That you would be among us. That you would remain among us. And that in this way we would have you as our God in truth. That's how we should pray for anyone that God would be faithful to his gospel call. It's how we plead for our little ones. It's how we plead for our families. It's how we plead for our neighbors. Because this is the very same God yesterday, today, and forever. Well, congregation, I hope this has given you some some thought for these things, of what true, spiritual, humble, prayer before God should be like. If you would read the rest of this chapter, you would say that, that Jeremiah was instructed not to pray this prayer. That the sins of that land had been so great and for so long that judgment could not be averted. That indeed their, their bodies would be destroyed by the sword and famine. And that they would be utterly consumed. And yet we know that even in the midst of that, there was a remnant. There was faithfulness and mercy towards the covenant people of God. And, and as we've had occasion to read, even with God, God telling Jeremiah again and again that the sins of the people are great and judgment are coming, yet he is inspired with the Spirit of God to continue praying. I think that is what we should really take away. Are we continual in our prayers? That's really the mark of whether you truly love someone or whether you truly love your country, that you would give yourself to prayer, not only for, for a minute, not only for an hour, but for day after day, continuing to pray that God would rend the heavens and come down. Let us be such people of prayer. Let us be those who are truly seeking the blessing of our land we know that God gives grace to the humble amen in response to the message let us sing from psalter 391 to 3 Lord Jehovah, great hope of Israel and Savior in times of trouble, we call upon your name and we plead, Lord, that you would forsake us not, though we deserve that you should forsake us a thousand times over, whether as individuals or as churches or as this nation of Canada, we plead, O Lord, that your spirit would yet strive with men, that you would conquer and, and that you would conquer the hearts of men and women and boys and girls unto yourself. The name of Jesus Christ also may be magnified, and that in him being lifted up all men may be drawn unto him. We pray for our nation in these days, not merely for the spiritual, not merely for the physical well-being, but also for the spiritual, not merely for liberty and safety and health, but for true spiritual good, for conversion, for holiness, for godliness, that in this way your name may be magnified and your covenant may be upheld. Help us, we pray, according to your great mercy also to be steadfast um, prayers and laborers in your kingdom that we would continue to stand in the gap for our country and that we would be those who desire their spiritual good no matter what. Please, Lord, bless your word to each and every one. Give a word in season and cause your name above all to be magnified. For we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now sing from Psalter 232, stanzas one to three. Mm-hmm. benediction. Let us sing from Psalter 200, stanza three is our closing doxology. Now depart in peace and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.